Geico presents sharing versus oversharing. Today, Bridget Griffin shared a video of her daily yoga routine, two self-help articles, and her new blog called Build Your Inner Bridge with Bridge. Girl, your sharing has turned into oversharing. No worries, Bridge. Geico has some info worth sharing with your seven blog followers, like how you could save money on your car insurance, update your policy, and report a claim just by visiting geico.com. How's that for building your inner bridge? Bridge, Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Blog Talk Radio. Knowledge is being buried. Truth is being hidden. Schools where truth and knowledge are supposed to be exposed are being covered by nepotism, favoritism, politics, and racism. And Africans continue to suffer at the hands of this oppressor. How could something like public schools go so bad, so quickly, in front of our very eyes? Maybe because it was never what it seemed to be. Let's unplug our minds from this racist matrix and find wisdom, knowledge, and truth in the mind beneath the school with your host, Mama Adana Aina Aluwasi. People, Hotep, glad you are here to join me for another episode of The Mind Beneath the School. I am your host, Mama Donna Aina Alawasi. I have a great show planned for you. I'm I'm already set up. So much is going on, but, you know, before we even get started, we must pay homage to our our ancestors and those who have come before us and 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 get blessings so that this will be a, another great show, better known as the libation. We call upon our ancestors far and near, fathers of our fathers, mothers of our mothers, to bear witness to what we have done, and by their example to continue to inspire us toward reclaiming our African minds, regenerating our African spirit, liberating our homeland, and reclaiming our greatness as a people. We pour this libation to bring into our midst the venerable African spirit, radiating their great wisdom, courage, dedication, and unyielding commitment to victory by any means necessary. It is in the honor of our Creator, our ancestors, our children, and their children that we pour this libation. For the Creator and the various manifestations of the Creative Spirit, we pour libation. For our esteemed ancestors who laid the foundations for human civilization and who provided the wisdom by which we live and the models by which our lives are guided, we pour libation. 
for our esteemed ancestors who have suffered the atrocities and demonstrated the victorious power of the African spirit against adversity and the horrors and 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 getting through the horrors of the Mayafa by maintaining their dignity no matter the cost, we pour libation. And for those ancestors who survived and made it possible for us to be here today to continue on their valiant struggle for African liberation and vindication, we pour libation. And finally, for our children and their children and future generations of Africans to come, that they too in their time will vindicate our race from all adversaries and continue to imprint upon the world the great genius of the African humanity and spirit, we pour libation. May the venerable African spirit engulf this occasion to reaffirm our African-centeredness, and it is done. Ashe, Ashe, Ashe. Well, once again, we are here together this evening, uh, continuing on the quest of, of African-centered education. And the topic really today is what are the benefits of an African-centered education. Um, I'm going to hold out because I have my guest here uh, with me, and so I'm going to, to hold out. I just had a few announcements that I will make towards the end and also, uh, you know, uh, just a few things. We had to talk about the, the uh, politics and everything, but I want to introduce my special guest this evening, Dr. Jalal Hayes, and, and the, the importance of, of this, this guest that we have here is that he's born and raised in North Philly, Okay, so and and educated in Philly. Okay, he uh, is the youngest to ever receive a PhD from Delaware State University in chemistry. Uh, got his uh, undergrad from Lincoln University. So I can't think of anybody better to have uh, to, to begin the discussion on the uh, uh, the benefits of an African-centered education. Uh, than Dr. Jalal Hayes. Um, Dr. Hayes? How you doing? It's good to have me. <laughs> oh, thank you, and it's wonderful. I'm so happy you was, you was right and early. I said, well, I could switch everything around. I I, uh, um, I uh, was making the introduction. I, I want you to tell everybody a little bit about yourself, because, you know, since we work together, but I, I want you to tell your story, and then we're going to jump right into it. I don't All see right. why we can't. We already got uh, got a couple callers here, so I want you to just jump right into it, you know, about your educational experience and, and, and um, because you had already prepared what you were going to talk about. So let's talk. All right. We can just, we just right, jump right into it, Mama. Um, basically, um, as you stated, um, I was um, mostly raised in Philadelphia all my life. Um, throughout my throughout my educational background, I went through many types of school systems from private school, public school, charter school, and back to public school when I finished uh, high school in two years. And then I transferred over to Lincoln University um, in about three years, finished at 18, and just recently finished my doctorate at 22. come from a family of educators, so they encouraged me to do things. I am a 
the encouragement to do the things I'm doing right now. Um, I am a fam. I am. I could believe I could say. In terms of siblings, I'm the second oldest. I have an older brother. I have a younger sister, and also I have a little brother who should, who both my younger siblings should be finishing this year, at um, at young ages as well. My sister at 20, and and my little brother at 15 in, in high school as well. So I just can say that I'm just thanking God just for everything that's happening because. When I started out, I believed that I couldn't do education. I really didn't like school. But now, looking back, I see that um, education is the key, the proper education. Let me rephrase it. The proper education is the key towards becoming successful in life. So that's that's my little spill. Um, in addition to that, it inspired me throughout my time to not just focus on myself in terms of education, but also educate others. So currently I have about five mentees um, that I'm dealing with right now. In addition, I have a tutoring company that I do, as well as just a whole STEM company in general to try to just focus on encouraging others to try to not just walk the path that I walk, but walk a better path to try to create a better life, not just for themselves, but the world that is evolving that is evolving beyond our eyes today. So that's just a little spill about me. Anything else you got for me, Mama? Oh yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I want to go back when you said the. Uh, what was your educational experience in Philadelphia? Because um, you said you didn't care for school. So was that you know? Did you have to grow into it? And what exactly, as you look back? Okay. Well, did as you I look. See, Go ahead. No, no. Um, just to finish, um, to answer that question, um, I would say that reason why um, I didn't really care for school, and I think it's just like the students that you see today. Mm-hmm. Um, this the reason why is because we don't. I didn't have a sense of purpose at that time. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and being um, very young. Of course, you don't have a sense of what you want to do. You don't have any experiences in life to say what you want to do or mm-hmm. any type of exposure that you um, exposure to things of that what you want to do. So I think that for me, that's what was happening. And as I got older and as I started getting a little bit more exposure, that's why I began to try to value education um, better. And in addition to going through multiple systems, I see what I like and what I don't like and what I favor and what I don't favor in terms of education. So it's just a lot of things, I believe, exposure and experience. Okay, now before we get, because we got a caller holding, I I wanted to ask you, uh, Dr. Hayes, so in other words, uh, as you were going through the uh, educational system in in, in Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. what got you interested in school? What got me interested in school, and I think this ties into our topic today, is seeing people that's like me, look like me. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when I, I say this funny. When I was in 10th grade, what got me really into um, chemistry, that's what my Ph.D. is in, was that my 10th grade teacher was a black chemist. Matter of fact, a black female chemist at that. Mm. And just 
conversing with her, not, and she's showing me chemistry mate in a simpler way. It showed me that we too as black people can think scientifically and critically and break it down to people at the time um, and myself a 10th grader. It showed that all this science jargon, all this research that we deal with in the world that we see in the world is not as hard as we think it is. Interesting. So that's what Hold on, I got a caller here I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to. Uh, all right. Caller, are you with us here? Yes, I am. Oh, welcome to the Mind Beneath the School. Could you give us your name and, and what you have to say? Do you have any questions for Dr. Hayes? Well, my name is Pianchi. I'm here in the St. Louis area. Oh, okay. You know, I've been affiliated with, uh, not affiliated, but I have had a a very strong interest in the education of black and black African-American children for a long time. Mm -hmm. And in the 90s, I used to travel around the country and sit in outstanding schools and videotape them. And you had one there in in Philadelphia, I think it was Aisha Shule. I think it's okay. close now, though. Okay. Yes, and uh, you had some down in New Jersey and Trenton, too, APAC. It was part of the Conflict Independent Black Institution. And I appreciate what your your son has done. I, I know he worked very difficult, overcame some difficult times in order to achieve the, you know, what he's done, especially in chemical engineering. And uh, I have a grandson that's attending LSU right now. He's doing petroleum well, I, I want to correct you real quick. This is this is my colleague that we work together. <laughs> I'd, I'd be blessed if he was my son. I'd, 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 he'd be doing the show and not me. But this is uh, Dr. Jalal Hayes, and his his PhD was in it was in uh, chemistry. And so I wanted to because we deal with the Philadelphia school system, and he has been through the whole school system and has been educated in higher education at HBCUs that we have him on the that we have him on the air now. But please continue with your point. Yeah, and I appreciate what he's done. But I was gonna make some statements and some mm-hmm. people the way not want to hear it. But you talk about African Center curriculum, which I'm highly uh, uh supportive of my grandson went to a constant independent black institution school up until okay. uh they had financial problems. But the thing is with African Center curriculums you can't not have a true African-centered curriculum in a public school. You can have a pseudo, but it's never true because of the fact mm-hmm. that it's a public school. Why do you and I'm say sure, that? Well, you can't. This is this is a public school. you got your teachers. Teachers have to be qualified more than certified. And mm-hmm. you'll, in, in Philadelphia public schools now, uh, you don't have those. But you don't have your, your teachers is more influenced by the NEA than they would be by what the community. Yeah, uh, yes, yes, do. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Now let's look at something else here. I'm a highly proponent of school choice, including vouchers, whereas parents can decide at this point in time what we want best for our children because you tried all these other things, and also I think that a child should be highly prepared for these STEM fields like which uh, the doctor has been able to go through. 
And I think that should start early, as early as the sixth grade or even earlier. And I think the parents should have their children assessed early to see exactly where they are and where their deficiencies are at and then provide them with the resources, i.e. tutoring and uh, online classes and uh, okay, that's Dr. Hayes, what do you there. think feel about that? It comes um, that. I I agree with his statement. I think um, basically in the Philadelphia public school systems, they do do that. The reason why I know because I contributed to that. Mm-hmm. Um, throughout, as I stated before, um, when I gave my introduction, I have tutored along the way. I didn't just go through school. I actually helped people along the way with me to help understand this field because I was learning this field as I was going along, along with my peers. The only difference was I was grasping the concepts faster than my peers. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, instead of me just focusing on myself and just saying, well, I'm going to just leave people behind, I tutored my peers and tried to make sure they can catch up towards the – to try to overcome the difficulties of the STEM disciplines and understand that it's not as hard as you think they are. One of the things that people always, I, I believe, the reason why they think science is hard is because it all starts with two things, reading ability and the ability to deal with numbers. Now, when I was coming through the actual um on my STEM journey, I keep hearing they was telling me African Americans are afraid of numbers. They're afraid to deal with numbers, which I don't think is true because we love to do things such as count money. We know how to add to trap month by the vibe, so where do we come in of actually being afraid of numbers? I think it's the way that the education is being taught in terms of STEM. Okay. That is the, that's a main concern towards on how we actually allow African Americans to be prepared and stuff. You can be why prepared for think, anything. Why do you think? But it's you just were a matter able, of being prepared for it, huh? Why do you think you were able to grasp the things necessary for you to be able to do calculus one and two, whereas your peers are not? What the course of events went on in your life or something that you was exposed to or I wonder if you could uh, identify that if you could well I'm not as I could um, say to try to clear the air I'm not different I'm not different from anybody the only the things that made me grasp the crisper was um, it was just I saw it differently I saw it in a simpler way and, it, and the way I saw it in a different way was by the way I was trained, but my tutors, my mentors that I had. And so mm. to try to help my peers, I was trying to serve as those that tutor, that mentor, to try now, to break did down they, the In concept. other words, did they speak a, 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 I don't want to say speak a language, but did they talk to you in a way that you said, oh, yes. I, 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 now why, I, I guess now were, were, were what was different with their tutoring that your peers didn't have? Why is it that you were you were able to grasp what your tutors were saying 
And did you, in fact, use that same way, I guess what I'm asking, to to uh, 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 tell other students in your class what was going on? Um, what the difference between their tutor and my and my tutor, um, my tutoring, the, the the way I was tutored was okay. Here were the basic terms on how to understand things. Like they broke it down to the foundation of the subject. So math, instead of using high level algebra vocabulary, they break it down to the basic arithmetic language. Like I said, mm-hmm. add, subtract, multiply, and divide. They broke it mm. down to that level. What I did, I took those same concepts of the foundation, but I used something that um, Dr. Christopher up in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. I, I think it's not Brooklyn, I, don't get me wrong, but he's um, part of the teacher's college up in Columbia. I used something called reality pedagogy that I didn't know that I was re- using, which was I took my peers and my self-experiences, and I incorporated it with those foundations because just not teaching the foundation is going to grasp the student's attention. And this is something where we learn in education. you got to try to engage the student first. The way you engage right. them, you got to give some of their reality into the classroom, bring some of that reality in there. Then once you bring that reality, you slip in the foundation. Once you slip in that foundation, then you can build up to the vocabulary of those um, technical terms that we, well, all our STEM people use, STEM professionals use today. So that's so you're saying, so you're saying that a student need to be need to learn that language, which I agree with you, that mm-hmm. uh, language as it applies to the particular course that you are taking. Uh, let me ask you another question. Now, for you to for you to do your bachelor's. In in chemistry, you had to do a probably 128 credit hours, and you probably carried 17 credit hours a semester. Now, I did 20. How, well, you you were very super then. But let me ask you, how many hours of study a week per credit hour did you allow? Because I try to get my grandson, and I say he's doing petroleum, and he carries around 17. I try to get him to put three hours per credit hour a week in study. So what did you do, and how did you build up? What 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 occurred in your life? Because you had to develop these study habits. So what occurred in your, in your educational uh, early on that helped you develop the discipline in order to put in those hours and also – to sacrifice because you had to sacrifice setting goals um what what really sparked my life when I was thirteen years old, I did a eighth grade project on this guy named Dr. Jesse Ernest Wilkins Jr. This guy graduated high school at thirteen and he got his doctorate in nineteen at the University of Chicago Elder he Wilkins, got his right? mathematics you said what that was uh, Wilkins. Yes. Yeah, I know. I, I knew him. Oh, okay, great. Um, what what inspired me was he was from. He was born in Chicago. I was too born in Chicago. He was he he came from a um, family of educators. I came from a family of educators. So 
as I'm noticing with students today, they first got to make that connection. Once they make that connection, they can see that it can be done. Once they can see it can be done, that's where the discipline and the work ethic to try to get there or get somewhat there to try towards their goal. Because their goal can be, I want to be a, let, let's throw something out there. I want to be a billionaire. Okay. Have you seen the African-American billionaires and the African billionaires? Have you heard of it? You probably ask a person who really doesn't read or really doesn't watch things like that, they give you an answer of no. But once they get that exposure and then look at somebody like, um, let's say, Bob Johnson at BET or Oprah Winfrey or the newest guy, I can't remember his name, but he owns a lot of tech companies and he's been under the radar. And once you give them a little exposure and they start reading about their lives, that's when I believe the discipline can set in in terms of when they start grinding, when they start hustling throughout their education. Because that's all I did. I'm not a special guy. I'm a guy that just got some exposure. I saw it can be done. And that's when all the study habits, um, the grind, the discipline start setting in. Because when, once you have a goal in mind, you do whatever it takes to reach it. And that's why I believe, especially... Um, African-Americans that are in minority communities, they have that grit. It's just a matter of how we're going to direct that grit towards a positive impact towards their lives and the lives around them. So you're saying that you're saying a child that comes up in a family where you have had mother and father or other siblings that have already went through the educational process, they're are more apt to catch on than those who have not. No, anybody can catch on. I'm not saying that at all. Anybody can catch on. Anybody can catch on. It's a matter of exposure towards where they're trying to go. It's turning okay. STEM. I know a lot of people from STEM that came from single-family homes. A lot of them. Mm-hmm. I meet them. Um, in Philadelphia, we about to have this conference called Bayer. I went to Bayer for two years straight, and I met a lot of successful guys that worked for GE, Boeing. They came from single-family homes. One guy I met, he works at um, he works at Microsoft now, and he came from a mama who's on crack. So it, it it's not about the background. It's about the exposure and where you're trying to go. Once you see the exposure... It creates a actual thing in their mind where this is where I want to be. I just got to figure out how I'm going to get there. But no matter what, I'm going to figure out how I'm going to get there. And that's where their grit and discipline start setting in. And the way they can try to get there is where they start drawing people in their life, such as mentors, tutors, and other people that will serve as a support system to get to where they need to be. So it doesn't have to be a two-family home. A two-family home would be um, nice. It will give them a sense of, okay, they have more support, but it doesn't necessarily have to have that. As long as they have a strong support system, 
I believe anybody can achieve in life, especially in STEM. Because in STEM, based off of my experiences and my peers' experiences, you need a strong support system, especially you're going to go towards becoming a real professional in the world of STEM. Did you watch much and host? Forgive me for asking a lot of questions, but I lecture parents on how to prepare their children for college, and I'd like to pick his brain as much as I possibly can to help me to be more effective in what I do. So, but I was going to ask him: uh, Did uh, did you read a lot? I mean, yes. you have a library, so if yes. you read a lot, did you sacrifice TV watching? Yes. <laughs> I, I did. That's a matter very fact, good question. Um, uh, and, and, and Dr. Hayes, I'd, I'd like to piggyback, if you could, to, to extend that. Uh, television, since since we're on the, the topic, how do you wean yourself? Because so many kids are involved. <laughs> if they, they're glued to their telephones, they're glued to their tablets, and they're glued to the TV set. How, in fact, did you and this is about your because you were about not that far removed in their age. Did you yeah. wean yourself off, if, if there was any weaning involved, the, off of the television, social media, that, that whole thing, so that that way you could uh, get the exposure and become engaged? Well, well it's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> while I went to college, my first semester, I was a roommate with this guy. He was from Haiti. Mm. And he had a TV, but he didn't plug it up. And <laughs> Okay. Me, me being from Philadelphia, I watched, you know, before I went to college, like I said, I was an average teenager. I watched watched TV. I did, yes, I studied, did a lot of work um, in order to get to college at 15, but I was still a regular teenager. When I, and when I went to college, I saw, you know, I wanted to watch some TV. This guy <laughs> said, I don't watch TV. And myself, I didn't have a TV of my own. Mm-hmm. So... I could say that I, it basically made me go study more and made me go to the library more start reading books. And till this day, um, I, I I thank God for that memory because when I started grad school, I said for my first semester, I'm not watching TV because I was so used to being in the mode of when I start something fresh, I got to just stay focused on that one thing. And if that okay. means cutting off a TV, mm-hmm. then I can't do TV. I sacrifice TV. That's what newspapers are for. I just read up on the news. Mm. But that that's just something that um, I had to just get to in terms of reading is where it's at, not TV, because TV is nothing more than just a filter of information anyway. If you read a book, you can interpret mm-hmm. it for yourself. TV is going to tell you their own interpretation. How now, when you're in the classroom, how do you translate that to the students that are in front of you now and in get them involved of, to, to, to feed in or to, to to buy into what you just said, if, if in fact, that is what you do? Well, it's, it's, it's funny. I'm glad we're talking about this because I just did this. Um, today, one of my students today, he told me he wanted to play Division One basketball. Mm-hmm. I said, "Okay, you want to play Division One basketball?" He said, "Yes." 
I say, do you know that Division One basketball? I'm, I had to really like lie to him a little bit. I said, do you know Division One basketball requires a three point according <laughs> to NCAA guidelines? He said, really? I said, yeah. What's your GPA? He said, damn. I got one point nine. I said, okay. How are you gonna get to this three point This your sophomore year. We got two years. What we gonna do? He said, I guess I got a, a study in class. I said, okay, how are we going to study in class? How, how are we going to get this work done? How are we going to make sure we get the grades we need in order to get to that 3.0? He said, well, mm-hmm. I got to do my homework. I said, okay. We're going to do your homework. Will we? How are we going to do our homework and make sure we fully understand the homework? He said, I guess I got to turn off the TV. I guess I got to put the cell phone away. See, mm. That's how I know the students know what to do. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to do it unless there's a specific goal they need to reach. And um, and, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and this is why I noticed about that's how I was. But once they start doing it for so long, it becomes a habit to where with anything they want to achieve, they just unconsciously do it. Interesting. They don't think about it no more. They they start reading the book and they don't even realize they're not even watching the TV no more. They're not even looking at the cell phone no more because they're in the mode of I want to be successful. I want to do something with my life, and I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get to where I want to be. But until they set that goal, they set that dream, they set their vision in mind, and they really mm. look at it and they have somebody reminding them. They're going to go back to the TV. They're going to go back to the cell phone. Mm-hmm. So, so it's all about training the mind to reach a particular goal, to reach a particular dream, to re- reach a particular vision that they have in their life, I believe. So mm. you turned off the TV. So what did you listen at on the radio? What was the nature of the programming? For radio, I listen to I listen to all types of music. Um, I listen to hip hop, R and B, country music, classical music, jazz music. I listen to all types of music because in different areas you get different types of music. Um, being at Lincoln University, I listen to mostly country music because it's in a rural area. When I went to Delaware State, I listened to mostly classical and NPR because that was the culture there. Even though I was in D.C. a little bit. I listen more of um, hip-hop, R&B, because that was a little more the culture there, as well as jazz, because that was the culture there. So You said NPR, National Public Radio? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite stations, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Man, it, it helped me see the world a whole lot different. I'm also a historian, so I appreciate things like that. Mm-hmm. I appreciate um, NPR as well. So... Those are the type of things I listen to on the radio. I always try to, I always tell the students, you got to be in touch with the world, but you don't have to do it through watching. You can do it by creating your own, your own images in your mind through reading and even just listen to just, just listening to just things that's going on in the world through NPR. I don't mind them listening to music, but try to wean off and listen to other cultures and music to try to get a perspective or what's going on in society. Because, and this ties back to the topic, when we have an African-centered education, yes, we have to listen about um, the 
the essence of Africa and how it needs to be taught towards our African-American children. However, we need those other perspectives to see how the world sees us. And what's the best way they do it is through music. In my opinion, through in the modern day, 20, in the modern 21st century now, the best way to do it is through music. You can listen to the lyrics and listen to how people perceive their world and mm-hmm. how in our culture we see our world and we can compare the two to see, okay, what's right here? What's wrong here? And, we, and the best way to do it now is through music because music to me is like current events. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's how I always try to tell the students, since I'm close to their age, I can relate to them saying, okay, you don't exactly. like reading newspapers? All right, we're going to listen to some NPR. You don't like doing okay. reading? We're going to listen to music of the day. We're going to listen to hip-hop. We're going to listen to whatever you like to listen to. But we also going to listen to some country. We're going to also listen mm-hmm. to some jazz. We're also going to listen to a little bit of um, a little school. bit of um, rock music. We're going mm-hmm. to listen to some um, old-school hip-hop, some, some, some old-school um, jazz. And compare to see what's going on in our, in our world, how we changing throughout the time. Now, I, I you know, in the beginning, the caller has said this about the difficulty in infusing the African-centered uh, uh, curriculum into a public school. Uh, how do you how do you see that, Doctor Hayes? Do you do you when you because I know that you know you're doing STEM. Do you find yourself doing that just through, not necessarily through the curriculum, but just through yourself, that they see you the same way you saw your chemistry teacher, that they see you, and not only that, but you're you're a man, which is Mm -hmm. so important. You know, I was just saying, wow, this guy, you know, and I tell the students all the time, I said, I don't think you understand what it is that you have here. You have something that is is a dying breed. We don't have this all the time. And he has a doctorate. You need to absorb. So a lot of times you see my kids actually going, I'm telling them. I'm actually, I'm kicking them in the door because this is something so unique, so beautifully unique, okay, that, that and, 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 and also shamefully unique. Okay, that 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 in our school we are really uh, 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 blessed in the way that they can see themselves in you. Wow, look at what Doctor Hayes did—he could do it, you know. And and I understand mm-hmm. what he's saying. I, you know, I'm actually getting it. That maybe I, that, that maybe I could do it. Do you do you find that to be true in in the classroom? Yeah. I, I really do find that to be true in the classroom because, and this is for really for my black um, black males, I really see a difference in the way they interact with um, other men, whether white or black, and even the females, how they treat the females mm-hmm. um, when I got when I first got there a lot of educators go through what is called a testing period they try to fail you out see if you mm-hmm. 
the student shot failure, I see if you're a real person. Mm-hmm. After getting through that phase, they start to begin to respect you and start really seeing what you're about and really start asking questions and saying, mm-hmm. and, and I get this a lot. They say, you really graduated at 15? And I said, yeah. Mm-hmm. They said, they said, but you're from North Philly. I said, mm. yeah. <laughs> mm. And that is, and and they mean that. That's that, you know, they cannot, that's a concept. They have to conceive that, like what you were talking about, that, that that's something that they have to get in their mind that, wow, he's from North Philly and, and he graduated 15. Yeah. And and I just tell them, I, I just work hard. I'm really not a, a smart guy. I really just put in the work. So we just put in the work, mm-hmm. use that Philly grit, which I know they can too, mm-hmm. and just do what we got to do in mm-hmm. order to succeed. And the way I know they can do it because I came from it. Mm. I may not mm. did it in, like, I may not do it in the area I teach, which is South Philly, but right. Philly in general, I know the culture of black men. We we love to grind. We can grind. We, we can grind mm-hmm. if we really want something. That's right. The key is right. we don't, as I see in the black males, and I ask everyone, every black male I talk to at my school, I said, what do you want to do? Because I teach 10th and 11th graders. I said, what do you want to do one or two years from now? Mm. Most of them say they don't know. And it's sad because you would believe, you would think that somebody would come along and ask them that question. And I'm not saying all te- no teacher does it, but that this is where African-centered education comes along. When you have somebody that looks like you, when you have an exposure of opportunity to try to give a kid a goal, that's when you start making stuff happen. For example, when they see somebody looking like them, Suit and tie every day. Yes, I guarantee do. you, they want to. They 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 slowly look at him. Uh, he he probably just wants somebody that he think he important. But when they start conversing, and then they look at your attire, they say, "Hmm, how can I be like him?" They subconsciously say it. They 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 afraid to ask you, but they subconsciously say, "What did he do?" And he from the same or similar area that I'm from. And that's different. Or Go ahead, and, that's, please. and that's what I noticed about a lot of and that's why I say a lot of black males, because I have a lot of interventions with them. And I, I can imagine down, I'm I'm so happy about that. It's needed. Go ahead. I, I try I try to. <laughs> I try to. Because <laughs> I, I I see potential in some of them and it's just they just need some direction. They really do. Mm-hmm. It, it, and it all starts with a simple question. What do you want to do when you when you finish? Or what do you want to be when you grow up? And when I ask that question, a lot of them, a lot of students just get stunned. They're like, wow, nobody really asked me this question before. And and that's where the African-centered education is surrounded, in, what, based on the literature I was, I was reading. It's surrounded on that concept of, 
okay, where do you want to be as a man? Yes, an African-American man, but as a man. Mm-hmm. And how can we get you there? Well, first, you got to show them something. Get, give them a face, an African-American face, to where that, that gives them a, a goal to where they want to be. Somebody say, I want to be an activist. Give them Martin Luther King. Give them Malcolm X. Hell, mm-hmm. we give them the modern-day Cornell West. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. you want to be a writer? Okay, let's let's give the new guys Coke. How you? Mm. Coke. Very let's good. Get, yes, let's, yes. Let's, let's put him up there. Who that? This guy just won bestseller. He he looked just mm-hmm. like he's young. A wonderful book. Yes, yes. Uh huh. Go ahead. You want to? And, and that's why. And that's why I keep saying I'm I'm not different. I'm not different, honestly. The only thing that was different that happened in my life was when I was eighth grade, I got that exposure. And when I saw that exposure, we have a black man, 19, University of Chicago, got his Ph.D., mm. and he's black doing it back in his time when it was very racist in the field of STEM. Mm-hmm. I knew I can do it. And then... And he go a little bit more exposure when I'm dealing with tough times. This is where my history background kicked in. I researched and said, hmm, who who could I listen to or watch who dealt with this tough time? And I well, peeked in my head. I remember tough, looking at this guy named Dr. Percy Julian, the second guy who got his Ph.D. in chemistry in, in the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. Watching this guy, all the things he went through, it took him 10 years to get a Ph.D., not just not because he couldn't do it. It's because he had to deal with all the he, – he not only had to deal with regular racism, he had to deal with scientific racism. And scientific racism, that's something that black scientists should tell you. <laughs> really? They believe, it, well, 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 go into that a little bit. I've never heard it, <laughs> even well, though it, I'm, not, it, it, I'm not surprised. But, but please go ahead. Well, science, scientific racism – I, I may be wording it wrong, but it's racism in science. It, it's more racism in science than in any other field. The reason why is because first, they believe black people can't do nothing. Mm. That's number one. Now, when you step in the field and do something, they believe, is it real or is it true? And that's where um, I believe that, that, that that's where I had to revert back to Watching the history on, okay, who dealt with this stuff, and what peaked him, and what showed up for me was per- Dr. Percy Julian. He mm-hmm. dealt with not only regular racism of his time, but scientific racism, where he was making all these inventions where he could have had Nobel laureates, but because he was black, he couldn't get them. He he couldn't get his due until he died, and that's where I think African Center Education, where we got to expose some of my young people. Because African Center Education shows you the reality of what's going or what's going to happen. Because it's it's still going to happen. Yes, you're going to get your due, but you may not get your due when you're getting your due. But you're going to get your due. You're going you you're to get the recognition. You know, you talk about the Wilkes. 
Yes. Uh, it, Wilkes was Wilkes participated in the Manhattan Project. Yes, he did. And actually, it was 13 black scientists that participated in the Manhattan Project. Yes, he And was. if you get a book called Blacks in Science, it mentions some of them. And you don't hear anything about them. You know, they're not in your popular physics books. Uh, they're not mentioned. They're invisible. And, yes, there is a lot of scientific racism, historical uh, racism, paleontological racism. And it exists. You just have to overcome it. Exactly. But um, also, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead, please. Don't let me interrupt. But, but also, what I learned um, in the philosophy of history, we, we as um, African Americans of today, now we know this information. We must do our due diligence and write the story. Yes. Uh, you, mm. you did tell me blacks and scientists. Is that Dr. Ivan Van Sutterman you referring to? Ivan Van Sutterman, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. Ivan Van Sutterman. Okay. Because um, I, I read a lot about him when I was at Lincoln University. That was the first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the first books they gave us when we, in our freshman year. Mhm. I I believe it's our duty to keep telling the story, and that's like I said again. That's where the exposure comes in. And now I believe. I agree with the um, I agree with the caller that we we do have to try to expose it younger. Yes, it has what to be at a you, young age. What did you do in order to achieve your extracurricular activity, volunteerism, and awards? Because uh, you have to have that in order to have an impressive resume when you're applying to colleges. With it, how did I question again? I apologize. Well, what? How did you go about fulfilling your requirements as far as volunteerism, extracurricular activity, and also awards uh, coming into high school, going out of high, coming out of high school? Because those are necessary as an added re- on your resume when you apply for college. You know, uh, colleges like uh, Sanford, everyone that applied to there is carrying excellent GPAs and also high college entrance uh, tests, ACT and SAT. But they want to look at and see what type of individual you are uh, Mm -hmm. to make you a rounded student. So on those three paradigms, volunteerism, extracurricular activity, and also the wards, how did you manage that? Um, I did time management. I focused on the things that I like to do and create a schedule for. And that's what I did in high school, college, and grad school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I and you were tutoring. Believe, but that counts as um, I'm sorry. No, I was saying you were tutoring also. So didn't that count towards that particular yeah. goal? Uh-huh. Yeah, that 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 comes towards a particular goal, but I might have to disagree with you on that makes you a well-rounded student because some people, as I mean, some individuals, they may get the award and they may show all these accolades on paper, but when it comes to actually 
doing the thing, they might not be proficient in doing the thing. And I could just speak from that from my experience. Because I might have some things that's on paper, but there's a lot of things on paper that I don't really talk about. But when I get in a situation, you see me perform. But it's not on paper, if that makes any sense. Like, it's a well, lot yeah, of accolades that on display, but I actually do. But I don't think the things on paper necessarily states you're a well-rounded person. I just think that it's it, you have some you, you did some great things, but it doesn't necessarily make make you a well-rounded person. For example, you could have a person that didn't do any type of extracurricular activity that's shown on any particular extracurricular activity, but you put them in an environment where they have to think quick on their feet and moving. They probably be the best at doing that than a person who actually displayed all those qualities on paper. And I was really uh, looking at, for instance, when students apply for scholarships. Mm-hmm. If you're applying for scholarships with different organizations, uh, they ask you to produce uh, those things along with the application. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and uh, there's some, you know, they list and say that. Uh, your essay accounts for uh, so many points, and your activities in this area accounts for so many points. And you know, that's another point. I used to, ha- I had my grandson write essays at least once a month and store them because, uh, as reading is important, to be able to take what's in your mind and put it on paper and in a very, you know, formable structure is very important too. Caller, we have to. I we have to. <laughs> I have to. This has been fascinating and and wonderful, and I want to thank you so much for your for your question. I got one more question for him before I go. Okay. Are you a member of the National Society of Black Engineers? And do you utilize the activities that they provide? As a matter of fact, I think that their conference, their national conference, is going to be someplace near you, near Philadelphia that's, that's, this year. That's the one I just stated, Bayer. Oh, Black that, Engineer of the Year Awards? Yeah, NSBE, National Society of Black Engineers. I, I was an actual junior NSBE in high school. Okay, and I always, okay. And I kept my membership ever since. So I, yeah. yeah, that's great. So you, <laughs> yes, so you are a fine example in the... I don't know if you do do uh, talks on the telephone, but if uh, if you do, I sure would like to add you to a resource for you know students that I try to encourage and like you say, show them an example, which would be your. Oh, Paula, what you could do is go to the website, the mind beneath the school, and type in your information, and I will make sure that Dr. Hayes receives it. That sounds great, ma'am. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you, thank you so much for your time. Well, Dr. Hayes, <laughs> hey. I, 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 that was wonderful. I, uh, You enlightened me about so many th- things uh, that I really didn't focus on. I was thinking more about just the, the, the infusion. Now, how would you incorporate the African-centered curriculum in the entire, throughout a, a, a public school? You have English, you have math, 
science, you have English, math, science, and history. History and English are kind of easy. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, 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 when I say easy, that's all because it's already written. Yes. Okay. Math and science, however, are a little bit difficult. How would you infuse that? Like it, it, you, that, like uh, Dr. Malefia Asante last week was saying, you know, the pyramids, what you thought they just they just happened to, you know, materialize. He says a mathematician had to create that and know how to lay the structure for it. Mm-hmm. You know, so in other words, now he automatically, I didn't even think that way, but you're automatically infusing the African-centered way of thinking into that mathematical uh, 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 concept. You know, now how would you exactly be able to do that, or is it just you as a black man presenting it to a classroom that that is, is the and the way you present it, would that be enough? Um, I think he's just said it. It's in, let's create the African center mindset. <laughs> mm-hmm. The way we mm-hmm. do that, we gotta look at the history on how they did it. Yes, we got. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, they. We already know that living in America, we have a Eurocentric mindset. However, let's we we going we going to allow them to use a Eurocentric mindset, but we're going to slowly transition them all. The Eurocentric mindset showing the African centered mindset on how things are done. Wow. And, and and the way they could do it is by that's where the history comes in. With enough history you could say, okay, if they did let let's say they did math this way. Let's say they use that abacus. Mhm. The count the count money. Let's say they right. use that. We're gonna show them, okay. Here's the methods they have in the book. For this for this class, y'all, we're not gonna use a book. We 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 know y'all not to use we know how y'all not use math this way. Mm-hmm. Let's bring out this abacus now. First, you know, students they say, "What the hell? What is this abacus? What, yeah, what is he doing? Shit. What is this thing?" But then slowly they start understanding it. And then one day, one student gonna ask that that question. Well, such a well, teacher, why are we using the abacus? Then that's when you kick in the history. Mm. Because your ancestors used the abacus. And therefore, right. I want you to be connected into who you are. And this mm. is who you are. This, this is, is what are. we do. Dr. Hayes, is there anything finally that you would like to end? I did because I have kept you much longer, and it's been a fascinating conversation. Was there anything that you wanted to add? Because I know you you were you, you were fired up and ready, and I I I want you to get everything in that that you wanted to say. Um, I could say that for um all. First of all, I want to say for all people, I like thank y'all for listening in. Um, the mind beneath the school. This segment is a great opportunity, and also for. Anything that y'all like to contact me, my email is EliteUniversal2014 at gmail.com. That's E-L-Y-T-E Universal 2014 at gmail.com if you'd like to contact me for anything else. And other than that, I just hope everybody has a good night and just have a great day tomorrow. Okay. 
Dr. Hayes, thank you so much for your time, and I appreciate it. And I'm going to put that information on my website, make sure everybody gets it and put it out there, and I will also, you know, put it uh, on the Mom Beneath the School Facebook page uh, to make sure that anybody tutoring or, or whatever, they just want to contact you about anything uh, that they will be able to. Thank you so much. I will see you first thing in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you tomorrow, too. Okay, take care now. You too. Sir Jalal Hayes, Philly born and bred, youngest man to obtain a PhD uh from Delaware State University in the and 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 added on in the subject of chemistry. Well that was wonderful. Um I wanna I wanna get back. I I you know, there are so many things that happen in that segment that I didn't even think of and how to infuse uh in in, in STEM uh, uh uh how to infuse STEM period with the African centered way of thinking. Now the, the the caller brought up a very good point about the difficulty of infusing an African centered curriculum into the public school. Now I that that is very true. Doctor Malefi Asante is up in Pittsburgh right now doing that. But then since he's the father of, of, of Afrocentricity, it, it, probably he would have a way, and I would like to know what that formula is because as we spoke on it last week and we touched on it uh, uh, tonight, you have to change the whole mindset of the entire public school system. Now, I'm going to give everybody a break. I'm going to give a uh, 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 and play a little something, and when we come back on the other side, I want to discuss how exactly, what those benefits are, and, and, and apparently we can see what the benefits are, and how do you actually turn that around? We're going to go back, we're going to do a little Sankofa, go back, look and see what uh, Dr. Uh, Ancestor Carter Woodson said, and uh, Ancestor, of course, uh, Mother Malcolm X said. Uh, you are listening to the Mind Beneath the School. If you have, want to just call in if you up. The number is 516-418-5575. Again, 516-418-5575. And I will, and this is your host, Mama Donna Aina Alawasi, and I will see you on the other side.
Second Green. Uh, that was from way back in the day. I just I, I like to go back sometimes. I just like to just sit there and we've lost so many, you know, the uh ancestor Maurice White around town and uh we just gotta pay homage and enjoy that, that old music because uh uh we're kinda they're kinda leaving us here. Anyway, welcome back to the other side of the mind beneath the school with your host, Mama Donna Alawasi. We are going to continue our conversation about the benefits of an African-centered education. And if you missed part one, then you may have missed some of those benefits right there. But please, if you're up, it's after midnight. And uh, as uh, ancestor Gil Scott Heron said, it's the birth of a new day. And uh, that's why he called his, his his band the Midnight Band. And please give me a call, 516-418-5575. We're going to continue on with this. I, I want to introduce, before I start doing some reading here, with Ancestor Asa Hilliard uh, and Ancestor Elijah Muhammad about African-centered education, and before we actually really get into what what the benefits are, I want you to listen to it, uh, first of all, because I've been playing the chapters of the miseducation of the Negro, and this is a very important work. And though I know, you know, I, I, I want people to really understand, first of all, this conversation isn't new. This book isn't new. You know, we're talking about 80, 90 years worth of a conversation that we still are having. It isn't like even the topics are new. It isn't like we, you know, uh, uh, well, we're in the 21st century now, so we're having 21st. No, we're still having almost 19th century conversation about this same topic, how to educate the African child in Born in America. Part two, chapter two of the miseducation of the Negro. How we have arrived at the present state of affairs can be understood only by studying the forces effective in the development of Negro education since it was systematically undertaken immediately after emancipation. To point out merely the defects as they appear today will be of little benefit to the present and future generations. These things must be viewed in their historic setting. The conditions of today have been determined by what has taken place in the past, and in a careful study of this history, we may see more clearly the great theater of events in which the Negro has played a part. We may understand better what his role has been and how well he has functioned in it. The idea of educating the Negroes after the Civil War was largely a prompting of philanthropy. Their white neighbors failed to assume this responsibility. These black people have been liberated as a result of a sectional conflict out of which their former owners had emerged as victims. From this class, then, the freedmen could not expect much sympathy or cooperation in the effort to prepare themselves to figure as citizens of a modern republic. From functionaries of the United States government itself, 
and from those who participated in the conquest of the secessionists early came the plan of teaching these freedmen the simple duties of life as worked out by the freedmen's bureau and philanthropic agencies when systematized this effort became a program for the organization of churches and schools and the direction of them along lines which had been considered most conducive to the progress of people otherwise circumstanced here and there some variation was made in this program in view of the fact that the status of the freedmen in no way paralleled that of their friends and teachers but such thought was not general when the negroes in some way would learn to perform the duties which other elements of the population had prepared themselves to discharge they would be duly qualified it was believed to function as citizens of the country inasmuch as most negroes lived in the agricultural south moreover and only a few of them at first acquired small farms there was little in their life which any one of thought could not have easily understood the poverty which afflicted them for a generation after emancipation held them down to the lowest order of society nominally free but economically enslaved the participation of the freedmen in government for a few years during the period known as the reconstruction had little bearing on their situation except they did join with uneducated poor whites in bringing about certain much-desired social reforms especially in giving the south its first plan of democratic education in providing for a school system at public expense neither this inadequately supported school system nor the struggling higher institutions of a classical order established about the same time however connected the negroes very closely with life as it was these institutions were concerned rather with life as they hoped to make it when the negro found himself deprived of influence in politics therefore and at the same time unprepared to participate in the higher functions in the industrial development which this country began to undergo it soon became evident to him that he was losing ground in the basic things of life he was spending his time studying about the things which had been or might be but he was learning little to help him to do better the tasks at hand since the negroes believed that the causes of this untoward condition lay without the race migration was attempted and immigration to africa was again urged at this psychological moment came the wave of industrial education which swept the country by storm the educational authorities in the cities and states throughout the black belt began to change the course of study to make the training of the negro conform to this policy the missionary teachers from the north in defense of their idea of more liberal training however fearlessly attacked this new educational policy and the negroes participating in the same dispute arrayed themselves respectively on one side or the other for a generation thereafter the quarrel as to whether the negro should be given a classical or a practical education was the dominant topic in negro schools and churches throughout the united states labor was the most important thing of life it was argued practical education counted in reaching that end and the negro worker must be taught to solve this problem of efficiency before directing attention to other things others more narrow-minded than the advocates of industrial education seized upon the idea feeling that 
although the Negro must have some semblance of education, it would be a fine stroke to be able to make a distinction between the training given the Negro and that provided for the whites. Inasmuch as the industrial educational idea rapidly gained ground too, many Negroes for political purposes began to espouse it, and schools and colleges, hoping thereby to obtain money, worked out accordingly makeshift provisions for such instruction, although they could not satisfactorily offer it. A few real industrial schools actually equipped themselves for this work and turned out a number of graduates with such preparation. Unfortunately, however, the affair developed into a sort of battle of words, for in spite of all they said and did, the majority of the Negroes, those who did make some effort to obtain an education, did not actually receive either the industrial or the classical education. Negroes attended industrial schools, took such training as was prescribed, and received their diplomas. But few of them developed adequate efficiency to be able to do what they were supposedly trained to do. The schools in which they were educated could not provide for all the experience with machinery which white apprentices trained in factories had. Such industrial education as these Negroes received then was merely to master a technique already discarded in progressive centers, and even in less complicated operations of industry, these schools had no such facilities as to parallel the numerous processes of factories conducted on the plan of the division of labor except what value such training might have in the development of the mind by making practical applications of mathematics and science in, it was a failure. The majority of Negro graduates of industrial schools, therefore, have gone into other avenues, and too often into those for which they have had no preparation whatever. Some few, who actually prepared for the industrial sphere by self-improvement, likewise sought other occupations for the reason that Negroes were generally barred from higher pursuits by trades unions. And being unable to develop captains of industry to increase the demand for persons in these lines, the Negroes have not opened up many such opportunities for themselves. During these years, too, the schools for the classical education for Negroes have not done any better. They have proceeded on the basis that every ambitious person needs a liberal education when, as a matter of fact, this does not necessarily follow. The Negro trained in the advanced phases of literature, philosophy, and politics has been unable to develop far in using his knowledge because of having to function in the lower spheres of the social order. Advanced knowledge of science, mathematics, and languages, moreover, has not been much more useful except for mental discipline because of the dearth of opportunity to apply such knowledge among people who were largely common laborers in towns or peons on the plantations. The extent to which such higher education has been successful in leading the Negro to think, which above all is the chief purpose of education, has merely made him more of a malcontent when he can sense the drift of things and appreciate the impossibility of success envisioning conditions as they really are. It is very clear, therefore, that we do not have in the life of the Negro today a large number of persons who have been benefited by either of the systems about which we have quarreled so long. The number of Negro mechanics and artisans have comparatively declined during the last two generations. The Negroes do not proportionately represent as many skilled laborers as they did before the Civil War.
If the practical education which the Negroes received helped to improve the situation so that it is today no worse than what it is, certainly it did not solve the problem as was expected of it. On the other hand, in spite of much classical education of the Negroes, we do not find in the race a large supply of thinkers and philosophers. One excuse is that scholarship among Negroes has been vitiated by the necessity for all of them to combat segregation and fight to retain standing ground in the struggle of the races. Comparatively, few American Negroes have produced creditable literature, and still fewer have made any large contribution to philosophy or science. They have not risen to the heights of black men farther removed from the influences of slavery and segregation. For this reason, we do not find among American Negroes a Pushkin, a Gomez, a Joffrey, a Captain, or a Dumas. Even men like Roland Hayes and Henry O. Tanner have risen to the higher levels by getting out of this country to relieve themselves of our stifling traditions and to recover from their education. Okay. What does all that mean? And it is the, 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 the sad thing about it is that basically we still have this problem. What, 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 what Ancestor uh, Dr. Woodson is, 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 is saying is that the education that is being provided to the African born in America is of no use to us. Because once again, we are being infused with a Eurocentric way of thinking. Okay, when blacks and, and now now listen to what he could because he's talking about two generations removed, so he's talking about slavery. He's talking about okay, we 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 we've been freed. It's 1865, and we have been freed. Then you had the Freedmen's Bureau. This is where you went, you know, and you you got yourself together to figure out what you wanted to do. The first thing you had to do was move away from the plantation. A lot of blacks didn't do that. A lot of Africans born in America did not do that. They didn't know, they didn't know what to do. So they stayed where they were. Okay, that was that field hand and that, you know, the, 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 the house nigga. They, they, the house nigga, what am I supposed to do now? So therefore you had the freedmen's view to kind of like set everybody in some kind of direction, which was really ill-used because it was the, 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 the bureau was really, uh, the, uh, the information was disseminated in the church, and I guess through through other people, you know, whites, whatever, and that you would find out what it is, you know, may, maybe get a little bit of something, because you certainly didn't get your 40 acres and a mule. So, and and then move on. And part of this was education, teaching, because, of course, it was illegal to learn how to read and write, okay, which is a whole nother thing. And legislation, just because the South lost, and so now everybody was said to be free, everybody mentally didn't think that way. Okay, you can't legislate somebody's way of thinking. You know, we weren't supposed to be able to read and write for a reason. Okay, and and, and that's, that's very important from... The Willie Lynch letter, and I don't care what nobody say, I believe that this, this actually existed because there seems to be some problem with the existence, but I believe that it existed. I believe there was a Willie Lynch, and I believe that he wrote this book because, once again, slavery didn't just happen. 
there had to be a process. There had to be a, 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 a business plan because we were, in fact, we were not people. We were materials. We were objects. Okay, we were horses, we were pigs. Okay, we were we were we were equipment to get this thing moving. Controlled language, cross breeding completed for further severance from their original beginning, we must completely annihilate the mother tongue of both the nigger and the new mule new mule that's the when the the white man raped the 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 slave woman the 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 child is considered the, the new mule and the institute and institute a new language that involves the new life work of both you know language is a peculiar institution it leads to the heart of people the more a foreigner knows about the language of another country the more he is able to move through all levels of that society therefore if the foreigner is an enemy of the country, to the extent that he knows the body of the language, to that extent is the country vulnerable to attack or invasion of a foreign culture. For example, you take the slave. If you teach him all about your language, he will know all of your secrets, and he is then no more slave, for you can't fool him any longer, and having a fool is one of the basic ingredients of an Incidents to the making of the slavery system. We weren't supposed to be able to read and write because we were a thing. Chairs don't read and write. Tables don't read and write. You were supposed to pick cotton, get that sugar out, and that was it. Now you're free. The people who instituted the, the, the institution of the, the people who put in place the institution of slavery were now given charge to teach you this language. Okay, that bears repeating. The same people who enslaved us were now given the responsibility of teaching us. Well, how do you think that worked out? How did that work out? If we're still discussing the same problems that Dr. Woodson was discussing in this book, well, it worked out real well for the system because this system was never created to benefit us. We weren't, we weren't meant to learn. So if, in fact, you're setting up two systems now, we're going to teach them how to either work or we're going to give them a classic education filled with books and knowledge, a Eurocentric classic education filled with books and knowledge, a Eurocentric technical school of how to work, of how to be a slave. But now you're a slave that can read because they're not teaching you the language, okay, the, 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 the real essence of what it is, to be an African in America, how to really be successful. Because we have no language, we have no culture, we've been stripped of all those things. We have been raped of all of those things. The argument that it ensued, that became the being, a very violent argument, 
okay, but a but but one that is still prevalent today. You 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 have Du Bois, and then you have Booker T. Washington. Technical school versus classic education. Pick one. The only thing that was good about this argument is that it set up an agenda. The agenda that it set up is you had to pick one. That's an agenda. An agenda is a, a, is, is 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 the things that you want to accomplish. Booker T. Washington had he we 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 may not agree. He said agriculture. He said teach a, a trade, learning how to read and write, but becoming such where you could be viable with neighborhood schools and the one that I teach at teaches that. That's what we do. A trade. Everybody isn't meant to be a higher learner and a higher thinker. He said it's trade. Learning how to be now. People didn't like how he went about that because he had to go about it by getting money from, uh, at the time, I, I, the, the president at the time, Theodore, Theodore uh, Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, and, and they became very well acquainted with each other. I don't know if they were friends, but they were well acquainted with each other, and, and Booker T got a lot of government money. Then you had on the other side, well, actually, then you had because I'm I'm going to introduce that that third person in in just one minute who I follow. You had Du Bois who said you're you're out of your mind. That 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 higher education, the classic education. Of course, Du Bois, as you know, graduated from Harvard and so on, uh, and and was a very high thinker. He's very fair too. Okay. Which you know, which it has its place, especially during the time that we're talking about. And Du Bois said you're you're insane, but of course, then Du Bois did some very important work. He was one of the he was one of the first sociologists of the of the uh, African-born America neighborhoods. Okay, philosophy. All of those things that Woodson was talking about, actually Du Bois became. So, you know, let's not downplay, you know, absolutely not. Wrote some of the books about, you know, of, 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 of uh, the education of the Negro. He wrote some wonderful essays, okay? And then, of course, The Souls of Black Folk, his, his sociology book, The Philadelphia Negro, and on and on, okay, and on and on. And then, of course, finally, the, uh, you know, helping co-found the NAACP, which in itself, you know, don't misunderstand me, but it was whites, a lot of Jewish people involved in that, and so there there were issues with that agenda. Then finally you had that black man from from the islands. Of course, I'm talking about Marcus Garvey. What a wonderful age that must have been to be in, to hear these guys thundering away at each other, you know. And then, 
we as a people who are to benefit from this conversation, picking one, well, I, I agree with Booker T. Now, I agree with Du Bois. Now, I agree with Marcus Garvey. And Marcus Garvey said, Africa for the Africans. He said, we need to have our own. And what he basically did was he fused together without the, the, the need of the white man. You see, because that was the one thing that, that Du Bois, people don't like to say that, but that Du Bois and, and, and Booker T. had in common, they needed the white man in order to eventually Du Bois separated and became one of the first Pan-Africanists, you know, uh, and, and moved to Africa. That's where he died. Okay, but in the beginning, in the in the very beginning, when he formulated like the NAACP, the Niagara Movement, and all that kind of thing, there was white people involved in 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 that very you know all up in his life, and then that became very frustrating. Okay, for him. So in the beginning, when he and Booker T were going at it, okay, that was the one thing that they did have in common. The one thing that Marcus Garvey cut off. He said, you cannot do anything with this oppressor because this oppressor is your oppressor. You can't expect him to, to build you up. You weren't born here to be built up. You were born here a slave. And there he, he founded the UNIA, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, which I am a member of, still right here, got two chapters right here in Philly, very much is still involved not as big as it was, but it established the third agenda. So you had these three major agendas going on at the turn of the, well, the turn of the century, jazz age, about the 1920, 1910, 1920. And all of them had an opinion, the three, Garvey, Du Bois, and Washington about education, about how to educate the African born in America. So eventually, of course, we started having the uh, uh, historically black, they weren't called that then, uh, colleges and universities. Higher thinking, higher educated. But as Woodson said, we had to be careful because if we did not infuse the African center, our own culture, and place us in the center, as, as, as Dr. Asante said last week, we must be at the center, in the middle. We are the subject, not the object. And that is where in the beginning we kind of lost track of that except for Garvey. Garvey was the only one. Either way, we really going to be the same. We had to go back to Africa. Then he started his Black Star Line, and, of course, we know what happened there. Unfortunately, because it would have been wonderful to see how that would have played out. But anyway, um, he said back that we must own our own. We must start our own businesses, and he did. And what made him dangerous and eventually created his own downfall was that he was successful. Black people were owning their own businesses. Black people were having their own conventions. We were separating. Du Bois and Washington were both very much against this. See, that separation thing, being on your own. No, no. The black man must be educated. The black woman must be educated. 
okay? But we need white folks. We got to have the white people. Marcus said, no, you don't. We can educate our own with our own culture, with our own understanding, and with us at the center. And there it began. And there we stand. And here we still are. So, as it went along, okay, just to, 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 so we could get to where we are and what Dr. Woodson was talking about. Now all of a sudden we're in the 60s and I want to I want to play another clip. I want to play I want to play another clip. This is this is this is this is brother Malcolm talking about the miseducation of the of the, of the negro. Hold on a minute, let me just pull this up right here. Also, this type of so-called Negro, by being intoxicated over the white man, he never sees beyond the white man. He never sees beyond America. He never looks at himself uh, or where he fits into things on the world stage. He only can see himself here in America, on the American stage or the white stage, where the white man is in the majority, where the white man is the boss. So this type of Negro always feels like he's outnumbered, or he's the underdog, or he's the minority. And it puts him in the role of a better, uh, a cowardly, humble, uh, uh, Uncle Tom and beggar on anything that he says is, uh, that sh- should be his by right. Whereas there is, uh, when it comes, he, uh, he, he wants to be an American rather than to be black. He wants to be something other than what he is. And knowing that America is a white country, he knows he can't be uh, black and be an American too. So he never calls himself black. He calls himself an American Negro, a Negro in America. And usually he'll deny his own race, his own color, just to be a second-class American. He'll deny his own history, his own culture. He'll deny all of his brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia, in the East, just to be a second-class American. He denies everything that he represents, or that everything that was in his past, just to be uh, uh, accepted into a country and into a government that has rejected him ever since he was brought here. Well, this Negro is sick. He has to be sick to try and force himself among some people who don't want him or to be accepted into a government that has used its entire political system and educational system to keep him relegated to, a, to the role of a second-class citizen. And therefore, he spends a lifetime begging for acceptance into the same government that made slaves of his people. He gives his life for a country that made his people slaves and still confines them to the role of second-class citizens. And we feel that he wastes his time because he hasn't been trained to defend himself. He has only been trained to open up his mouth in defense of his master. He hasn't been educated. He's been trained. When a man is educated, he can think for himself and defend himself and speak for himself. He doesn't even know where his government is because he doesn't know that he ever had one. He doesn't know where his country is because he doesn't know that he ever had one. He believes in exactly what he was taught in school, that when he was kidnapped by the white man, he was a savage in the jungle someplace eating, eating people and throwing spears and with a bone in his nose. And the average American Negro has that concept of the African continent. It is not his fault. This is what has been given to him by the American educational system. He doesn't realize that there were civilizations and cultures on the African continent at a time when the people in Europe were crawling around in the caves going naked. He doesn't realize that the black man in Africa was wearing silk, was wearing slippers that he was able to spin himself, make himself, 
at a time when the people up in Europe were going naked. He doesn't realize that he was living in palaces in, on the African continent when the people in Europe were living in caves. He doesn't realize that he was living in a civilization in Africa where uh, science had been so far advanced, especially even the astronomical sciences, to a point where Africans could track the course of the stars in the universe when the people up in Europe still thought the earth was round, the planet was round or flat. He doesn't realize the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the advancement and the high state of his own culture that he was living in. He knows nothing about that. He knows nothing about the ancient Egyptian civilization on the African continent, or the ancient Carthaginian civilization on the African continent, or the ancient uh, civilizations of Mali on the African continent, civilizations that were highly developed and produced science, scientists. Uh, the uh, Timbuktu, the center of the Mali Empire, was the center of learning at a time when the people up in Europe didn't even know what a book was. He doesn't, he doesn't know this because he hasn't been taught. And because he doesn't know this, when you mention Africa to him, well, he thinks you're talking about a jungle. And I went to Africa uh, uh, in 1959 and didn't see any jungle and didn't see any mud huts until I got back to Harlem in New York City. <laughs> Ancestor Malcolm X. Now, what he's talking about is that once again, what I reiterate, what, what, or I am reiterating what he said, is that you cannot expect the the oppressor, the white supremacist, and, and I don't. It, it doesn't make any difference. You liberal, conservative, it doesn't matter. To teach you about yourself. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And to further that, that was during the that was the early sixties. Before that, uh, there's a book called and if you have the opportunity, please buy Sava, The Reawakening of the African Mind by Ancestor Asa G. Hilliard the Third. S B A. Sava uh, the Reawakening of the African Mind. And in here he talks about the African-centered way of thinking and why it is beneficial. And he talks about, in, in this book, the legacy of Brown. Of course, he's talking about Brown versus Board of Education. Okay? And the Brown years mark a period in American history where the law was used to stop legal and open discrimination against African Americans. This was not to be. However well-intentioned, the architects of the law were. They did not foresee certain negative consequences. These policies impacted the African community in several detrimental ways. Now, we're going to go over these. I'm not going to go over all of them because he lists a lot. We're going to go over the first four. We're going to go over the first four. And then next week we're going to add on four more, and that's, that's, that's how many there are. Okay? And that the Brown, we're talking about Brown versus Board of Education. We're talking about, you know, when Thurgood Marshall and them fought, uh, for this, this child to be uh, uh, For schools to be equal To be integrated Okay Not separate but equal Which was Which that was what we should have been Fighting for separate but equal But they weren't And they felt the only way for it to To be equal Was to be integrated and not Segregated we had the Education part right because slowly, once again, we were doing for ourselves. 
You know, once there was segregation, the wealthiest black neighborhoods came out of that. Once again, doctors lived next to firemen, okay, lived next to teachers, lived next to the, the, uh, 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 sanitation workers. We all lived right next to each other in our own communities doing our own. The store owners, the, the people who ran the school, we were all in the same neighborhood, and we were segregated. Some of the things weren't equal. We felt that we that, 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 that there was a certain amount of equality as far as the materials and everything, never thinking that we could just do our own materials, that we had our own culture. You see, the thing that was in, uh, unequal was the Eurocentric, you, you know, the, the, the having access to the Eurocentric education. Well, we didn't need it. And that's what the problem was. We didn't need the Eurocentric education. That's what was unequal. We had our own culture, and if, in fact, we had realized that. So nobody's assessing blame. We want what's best for our people and for our children. Uh, Ancestor Hilliard is saying that there that it was detrimental, that Brown versus Board of Education, once that was passed, it was to the detriment of the black community. And here are the first four reasons that he gives. Black flight. There has been a black flight from the African communities by many Africans who have had financial and career options. This flight has left many inner city areas without financial resources and traditional community leadership. They took the money with them. They got a little something-something. My pop, rest his soul, used to say, working at the post office. That was something. Working at the post office, get one of them nice uh, 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 Ford jobs up north. That was it. If you were educated and you had a degree, you was either a teacher or a social worker. And when you got that money, you moved. Because the point was that the better or or to the, the the betterment of the race was integration, so you moved, you packed up your things, and you moved. But what we did as a community, those same people were the ones who were actually putting in the community we were buying we now had the money to buy from our own stores, we had the money to put into our schools. But now we were taking it out of the community. White flight. Number two, white flight. There has been a massive white flight from communities and public schools that serve African children. These whites have taken their businesses to the suburbs. Rather than do business with Africans, they have created industrial parks and gated communities leaving largely African populations in decaying inner cities. That's what happened. That's what happened in Detroit. That's what happened in Chicago. That's what happened in Camden, New Jersey. When RCA and all the rest of those people, I think the only one that's left now is Campbell Soup. It was an industrial. They bought those big jobs, and 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 black people worked there, and, and they were prospering. But what happened is that they moved out. All of those uh, plants and everything 
up there in Detroit, they started closing down and they started moving, started getting their parts and everything overseas. So what you have is a destitute Detroit, a Chicago, and slowly but surely, because the only thing that's keeping Philadelphia, we're going to discuss that, is being destitute are the the universities that are slowly but surely with gentrification taking over the black communities, which are disappearing. It's disappearing one way or the other. And white people in this particular instance is, is, is reversed. Instead of white flight, they're moving back. They're moving back into the neighborhood. In Camden, they got all the hospitals. So the doctors are moving back. And what's that? Slowly but surely, the black community is disappearing. Because nothing is being infused. Nothing is being put in. Okay, number three, school closings. Many premier secondary schools in Africa communities were closed. The students were uh, bused to integrate white schools. Small numbers of Africans in schools are of little inconvenience to whites. We don't know anything. Well, you all don't know. Your young folk don't know anything about this, but there was a big thing to, to bus. We're going to integrate one way or the other. They can't afford to move out of the neighborhood, so we're going to send a bus in there and ship them out. What was the purpose of that? What the heck was that? So you had schools that were being closed because they were empty. Gee, now, look, you're already used to, from the 60s and the 70s, you're already used to schools being closed in the black community. Look at how many, 23 schools were closed in Philadelphia. And ain't nobody was being bust. All right, Mama, then why were the schools closed? I'm glad that you asked that question. Because they were creating, first of all, you have charter schools now, and they were creating what they called neighborhood schools. And most of the white kids, and there are not that many white kids in the public school system, but they are either going to Central, Masterman, well, girls high, girls high, and there's another one I can't. It doesn't come to mind right now. But there are four schools that are test. You got to take a test to get into these schools, and all the rest of them are public schools, charter schools. Some are private. You got to pay, but the public schools are suffering, and they were closing. So you have all of these empty schools. That doesn't mean the children disappeared. That doesn't mean any, that's not that's not what I'm saying at all. It's the schools that disappeared. And so now what you're doing is busting black kids to other black schools and 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 kind of like consolidating them. So now you have large classrooms with 30 and 40 kids and now they're outsourcing substitute teachers. So when teachers are absent or maybe they're taking sabbaticals or whatever the case may be, you have some teachers who don't get any any kind of 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 uh, um, free time prep time. Okay, uh, 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 because they have fifty and sixty kids in the class, and there's nobody there to teach them. It's a hot mess. The public school system in Philadelphia is a hot mess. 
And it is all born in from this. When, in fact, in Philadelphia originally, you did have neighborhoods, black schools, and you had black teachers, and we were teaching our own. But like I said, that, that, that point of integrating would make it better than staying segregated and just improving upon the schools that we had. Okay, I'm running out of time here. And number four, fewer African teachers and principals. The ranks of the African school teachers and principals were disseminated. In fact, the percentage of African teachers have declined to less than half of what it was before integration. This is due less to expanded job opportunities elsewhere than to the use of biased and invalid standardized teacher uh, examinations. Many African students are now taught by white teachers who neither live in or know their communities and who, despite high national teacher examinations and TE scores tend to get poor results from students. Okay. I just said that two weeks ago. That hasn't changed any. Dr. Hilly wrote this book about 20 years ago, and it hasn't changed any. The, 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 the pool of African teachers born in America is is is, is is disseminating, it's just disappearing. Most of our, our African children are being taught by white teachers. Is, is, is there a problem with that? Not in, only because they are not African-centered teachers. As the caller said tonight, they are not read, they are not qualified. Okay? Now, according to being African-centered, not according, as, uh, as uh, uh, Ancestor Hilliard said, okay, they score high with the NTE test. Okay, I scored high with the NTE test. But, however, I have an African-centered background. I am them when I present myself to them. Dr. Hayes, when he presents himself to his class, they see his face and they recognize it as their own. Most white teachers do not live in the same neighborhood that they teach in, especially if they teach in the, in the, in the urban community. They do not. They live elsewhere. They have absolutely no idea what it is. Dr. Hayes does. He's from North Philly. He understands exactly what it is that they are up against when they get up in the morning to go to school. That's part of the African-centeredness curriculum. It isn't just a book. It's the experience. Now, do white teachers, to be effective, do they have to have that experience? Not necessarily, but you would need to be trained in the African-centered curriculum, in math, in science, in English, and in history. And that's where the difficulty comes in. The benefit is that these students, as is said by Dr. Hayes, they will buy into the education. 
when they see that they too can become successful. Oh, I could do that. When they too are being spoken to in the language that they understand by people that they recognize and understand. My people, my time is running, uh, going nigh, and it is time for me to sign off. I have had a great time. This has been just wonderful. Um, just a few announcements. We're going to continue this next week, the benefits of the African-Centered Education Part 2. But I did have a few announcements on it. If you're in the Philadelphia area, Saturday, February 13th, uh, if you uh, uh on Germantown Avenue, uh, and you would have to look that up. I don't have the exact address, but the uh, uh, Malefi Asante Institute, uh, the uh, the MKA Institute uh, on Germantown Avenue is having an event, having many events. But the first one on tap is the state of Black people in, in Philadelphia, the future of our communities. And uh, the guest speaker, here it is, Rahim Islam is a national speaker and writer, president and CEO of Universal Companies, a company, a community development and education management company headquartered in Philadelphia and convener of Philadelphia Community of Leaders. Uh, this is also, uh, in, in, uh, uh, Mr. Islam is a founding member of Universal, and the other founding member is, of course, uh, uh, Philly's own Kenny Gamble. And he is going to be at the uh, Institute talking about the state of black people in uh, Philadelphia, the future of our communities. Uh, it is at, oh, I have it right here, 5535 Germantown Avenue in Philly. And the uh, time is going to be from... Let's see. The time is going to be. I think it's from. Is it from twelve to three? Am I? Am I right here? Uh, it's going to be in the afternoon. I'm going to post that up on the. Oh, from five p.m. to seven p.m. I'm sorry. February thirteenth, from five p.m. to seven p.m. The black, the state of black people in Philadelphia, the future of our communities, with speaker, uh, <clears throat> uh, CEO of Universal Companies, Raheem Islam. Also. Uh, please support Word 900 AM. It is a uh, black-owned and operated uh, uh, radio station in Philadelphia. Listen to it. You know, uh, uh, be blessed by uh, uh, all the hosts and, 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 and radio hosts that are on that show. Word 900 AM and, and buy into it. Uh, become a member. It's cheap. They even have a, 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 a payment plan. $30 every three months, I think, or something like that. So uh, join up, Word 900 uh, AM. Um, I have to go. I have enjoyed it. I will see you all next Tuesday. Keep in touch. Get, uh, 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 watch the website. Find out who is going to be uh, on our show. Um, I have a lot of guests lined up. Just want to make sure I get it right. And... Keep tuned and always remember to uh, be aware of the hidden agendas in the educational system. It is always the mind beneath the school. Take care. Peace.
Dalai Lama of the mic, the prime minister thought This a record to whoever is listening, right? Yo, the whole state of things in the world about to change Black rain falling from the sky looks strange The ghetto was red hot, we stepping on flame Yo, it's inflation on the price for fame And it was all the same, but then the antidote came The black door held syllabus out the fifth This heavyweight rap shit I'm about to lift Like a father lift up his to sunlight I plug in the mic, draw like a gunfight I never use a call Geico presents sharing versus oversharing. Earlier this week, Claire Tippins shared a princess nickname generator, three pictures of her dog wearing a tutu, and two online quizzes, including what candy is your dream castle made of? Claire, your sharing has tipped the sugar scale and turned into oversharing. But have no fear, princess. Geico has something worth sharing with your internet kingdom, like how you could save hundreds on your car insurance just by visiting geico.com. No magic wand required. Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.